0: Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this weekend marks the annual occasion where we tip our hats to dear old dad. Perhaps we whip him up a special breakfast, or we take him out to the movies or a Nats game, or maybe, just maybe, we present him with a fancy new tie. That's right, it's Father's Day. And an interesting thing about Father's Day, actually... Did you know it's only been an official national holiday since 1972? Yeah, it first came about back in 1910 in kind of a more unofficial way when a woman named Sonora Smart Dodd pushed hard for the holiday in honor of her dad. His name was William Jackson Smart, and he was a Civil War veteran who raised six kids as a single parent. So in honor of all the hardworking guys like William Jackson Smart, we're dedicating today's show to fatherhood. We'll meet a dad who will have his young daughter in tow as he graduates from high school.
1: I usually get like a C's or a D's for English this year. I pass English for a B.
0: And we'll talk with the same-sex couple about their decision to become dads.
2: You know, when you're in your mid-20s when we met, and this was back in the mid-90s, we didn't really know of any other couples that had kids.
0: We'll also trek out to the Wildlife Center of Virginia to meet a father with feathers.
3: He's actually um, a little easier to get along with when he's with a baby. When he's alone on the off-season,
4: he seems angrier, for lack of a better word.
3: But first,
0: being a father can be really hard work, you know? One of the country's most famous fathers, President Barack Obama, said so himself during his annual Father's Day address back in 2011.
5: Hi, everybody. This Father's Day weekend, I'd like to spend a couple of minutes talking about what's sometimes my hardest, but always my most rewarding job being a dad.
0: I mean, not only are you making sure your children are clothed and fed, you're also trying to equip them with what they need for a happy and fulfilling life. For Maryland native Richie Lynch, though, being a dad has been especially tough. For one thing, it took him and his wife a while to get there.
6: We were married for three years or so. She's going to kill me if I don't get the dates right. And then uh, then we decided to have a family. Tried the natural way but I was told my guys were a little bit too slow. So I had to break out the science.
0: Science as in in vitro fertilization. And after four rounds of IVF in the early 2000s, Richie and his wife learned they weren't just due for one child. They were due for three. What was it like to get the news?
6: After they cleaned me up off the floor the uh (laughs) it's all a blur
0: the babies wound up being born pretty early just 29 weeks into the pregnancy and the smallest of the three was tiny a whopping one pound 16 ounces but besides the triplets something else has challenged 46 year old richie lynch as a father too in a major way
6: i am a c5 quadriplegic broke my neck way back in 87
0: he was 21, a college kid, and he and some buddies had been partying at a wedding reception in Maryland. After several cocktails too many, they stumbled upon a swimming pool. A
6: swimming pool that I was unfamiliar with.
0: And Richie decided he'd dive in.
6: a uh, dove in.
0: And he landed in the shallow end
6: hit the top of my head. I remember that.
0: But the collision didn't knock him out. Not instantly, anyway.
6: I played football for years, and you get these things called stingers when you get your head too hard and your neck, and you feel a little, a uh, little electricity shoot down to your fingertips, maybe sometimes, depending how you get hit. Only
0: this time, Richie didn't just feel that electricity shooting down to his fingertips. This time, it was all four limbs. And that's when he knew. Right then and there. I did something bad. Soon after, Richie Lynch passed out. And when he came to, he was in a bed in Bethesda's suburban hospital. Tubes sticking out of everywhere.
6: They are worried about pneumonia.
0: He wound up fighting pneumonia for several weeks. And when the doctors finally diagnosed his broken neck...
6: My neck had atrophied a little bit and it slipped out of place. They did surgery
0: to stabilize his spinal cord, which luckily hadn't been severed all the way through.
6: It only is impaired the motor side. I still have a sensory sides intact.
0: So now, Richie is considered a C5
6: quadriplegic. As far as the disability is concerned, there are a lot of different levels. There's the, there's the Christopher Reeve quadriplegic. He broke his, his vertebrae higher up in his neck. He was a C2, C3.
0: But as a C5, Richie has a bit more ability. Granted, he is impaired in all four limbs.
6: About mid-chest down, I don't have any voluntary muscle control
0: his triceps don't really function which limits his reach and my hands don't open and close voluntarily but he can propel himself in a wheelchair and that he says has come in mighty handy as he's dashed around raising his triplets
6: brendan haley and nicole
0: they are 12 now how old are they
6: 12 years old doing the middle school thing and all the craziness and drama that comes along with it
0: okay so maybe the kids can be a little bit difficult every now and then but here's the thing through it all, Richie says, they've always accepted him, just as he is.
6: Um, from their point of view, Dad's always been in a chair, so to them it's just Dad's in a chair. And when they were younger, I was a jungle gym, so so they, they would crawl all over the place, get their fingers in my wheels. I was basically stuck.
0: Something else that's been weirdly special about him, the chair, and his children, Richie says, has to do with height.
6: I'm a little more accessible to him, height-wise. And speed, I can't get up and boogie whenever I want to. So they uh, spend a lot of time coming up and chit-chatting with me and talking and, and giving me hugs when I don't expect it. So as a dad that can't really go out and throw the ball with my kids or do some of those things, that I try and make up for it in other ways.
0: He also tries to teach his kids some indispensable lessons because every now and again they have come up to him and asked, Dad, do
6: you ever wish you weren't in a chair? And I said, Of course. I mean, if, if I could roll it all over again and, and do it, I definitely wouldn't be in the chair. I was not headed down the right path when I wasn't in the chair. And, and being in the chair certainly wakes you up right away and gets you serious about life.
0: It also gets you serious
6: about how quickly life can change. Uh, so appreciate what you have now. Don't take it for granted. I try and remind them what they have and not to dwell on what they don't have.
0: And Richie does try to practice what he preaches. Not that he's some sort of Pollyanna.
6: Yeah, things that are pain in the ass. Not being in charge of your own personal care. I mean, showers and going to the bathroom and stuff. Yeah, that's real hassle.
0: But overall, he says, life is pretty sweet. Thanks to months of rehab at MedStar National Rehabilitation Hospital, he strengthened whatever mobility he had left. Thanks to new technology, he can wheel around and work his dream job as a graphic designer, which might seem, you know, a bit unexpected.
6: You hear a quads coming in for a job interview as a graphic designer and you, (laughs) oh my God, how's he going to do this?
0: Most of all, though, Richie Lynch can look around at his life and recognize the preciousness of what he's got.
6: Going down the hallway in rehab there were guys that were these high quads, and then you're you're pretty happy that you can scratch your own nose.
0: You can hug your own kids.
6: Yeah, it's it's true.
0: You can see photos of Richie Lynch and his triplets through the years on our website, metroconnection.org. Unlike Richie Lynch, the Father We'll Meet Next wasn't trying to become a dad. Damien A. G. has a one-year-old daughter, Crystal. He's also about to graduate from Cardozo Senior High in Northwest DC and begin college. Emily Berman
7: brings us his story. Damien A. G. met Diamond Fields in seventh grade.
1: I still remember the first day I saw her. I asked my friend, I said, Who is that? And she's like, Oh, that's Diamond. I said, Diamond. I said, Wow. So I remember one day I asked her to be my girlfriend, and she said yes, and I was happy.
7: They became best friends and were together for four years when Diamond called Damien and told him she was pregnant.
1: I was surprised when she told me. I was like, 101 questions came up to my head.
7: Questions like, how would a baby change his life? And could they both finish high school on time? He had promised his parents he would graduate. Both of his brothers had dropped out, but Damien wanted a diploma, like his dad, who said... Not to worry. It was going to be okay.
1: Dad, he said he was going to be there for me, and a lot of people was, and they was going to help me out. But yeah, I told him, Dad, I was still going to graduate from high school.
7: It was September, and Damien and Diamond went back to school for their junior year.
1: When almost everybody was asking me too many questions. It was in math class, actually, when everybody was asking me, "Is you having a baby?" I said, "Yes." I wanted to say no, but I was like, they're going to keep asking me, Ask me, so I will say yes.
7: It was just a week into the school year when Diamond learned about a program for parents called New Heights. Participants meet every day during lunch hour to talk about parenting, sexual health, and how to take care of babies.
8: I started going every single day because it became interesting for me. And then we get on lunch and we sit and we just talk. And for people that was like still pregnant, we
7: see how like different stomachs and how they was grown. She dragged Damien into a session, thinking he might like it too.
1: So I went, I say, Well, wow, I'm the only dude in here. It's gonna be hard. But then I was starting to listen, like, so that's what father do. Like, he makes sure that your family is protective, like nobody's not gonna hurt your family and shows you how to raise your baby in a good environment. Adults will say like saliva and urine and nobody
7: said that. From then on, they went every single day. Even when Diamond was out of school on maternity leave, Damian picked up all her schoolwork and told her what they talked about in New Heights that day. Being a father, he says, gave him a new sense of focus.
1: She pushes me like, you're going to have a three-point something before you graduate in. Like With English, I hate English. I usually get like a C's or a D's for English. This year I pass English with a B.
8: He get on focus. He'll watch he TV, play real game. I know, but I want him to do good. Because then we both do good and make us both look good as a parent.
7: Their daughter Crystal spends weekdays with Diamond's aunt, but on the weekends it's full-on family time.
1: She runs to me. She good. Try climbs up to me. She want to play. Then she likes when I put her on my shoulders. Like she's like, Yeah, I can see the whole world. Or I just tickle her and like gets to rub her belly and she like "Uh." like oh making funny noises. Or I just tickle her feet.
7: In the Lincoln Theater on U Street Northwest, Cardozo High School's Class of 2013 is rehearsing one last time before graduation.
3: Diamond, walk over. Mm -hmm.
7: Mary Beth Souza runs the New Heights Parenting Class and is keeping order as the students process out of the theater. Damian and Diamond were her star students.
4: And they're just examples of
8: what parents should be. They're hardworking motivated, dedicated, so we're going to miss them, but we know they're going to go on to great things.
7: In the fall, Damien and Diamond will attend the University of the District of Columbia and both plan to major in graphic design, and they definitely both plan to graduate. I'm Emily Berman.
0: break but when we get back a family with a daddy and a papa
2: in the early days that we were together we probably didn't think that being parents were going to be in the cards for us as a same-sex couple it was going to be challenging for us we'll talk with a local same-sex couple about
0: their decision to become parents plus a hollywood writer turned stay-at-home dad turns the daily hijinks of parenting into comedy gold
9: i'm sorry did you just moon me Great. No pants. Great. No pants mooning. That was a paycheck right there.
0: That and more in just a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU
4: 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Fatherhood is our theme this week, and in just a bit, we'll talk with a comedy writer turned stay-at-home dad whose musings on parenthood have landed him a book deal. First, though, we're going to hear from two new fathers, Kevin Sturtevant and Steve Geisiker. The couple in Silver Spring adopted their newborn daughter, Gabriella, a little more than a year ago. And Kevin and Steve are part of a national trend as more and more same-sex couples are raising children. These days, an estimated one in five LGBT couples has a kid under the age of eighteen. Jacob Fenston spoke with these new fathers at their home and sent us this audio
9: postcard.
2: Yeah. Did you sleep well? Yeah. You had a good good nap? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
10: Hi, Gabriella. Yeah, hi. Want to say hi. Say
2: hi. Um, I'm Steve Geisiger. My name is Kevin Sturdivant. We live here in Silver Spring.
10: Steve and I have been together for nearly 20 years.
2: In the early days that we were together, we probably didn't think that being parents were going to be in the cards for us. As a same-sex couple, it was going to be challenging for us. So it was really about three,
10: four years ago that we became really serious about it and thought that we were going to do it.
2: The process that we decided on was open adoption the birth mother or birth parents choose the adoptive family that they want to place their child with. You're basically marketing yourself as
10: a prospective parent and people who do it the old-fashioned way, who do it the biological way, don't necessarily go through the same process of creating a document that, that, that highlights why you and your family would be the best option for the child.
2: So this is a four-page brochure that we—color brochure that we developed with our adoption agency. And here's
10: our—there's here, th- our telephone number, 855-2-DADS. So people could easily call and let us know.
2: And we did. We, we had, but don't call we now because calls. it's not right, active right. anywhere. We're, we got our hands full, so uh, yeah. please, no calls. We were contacted by our daughter's birth mother in late November, and she was a college student in Indiana— She was a junior who had found herself pregnant and not prepared to raise a child on her own.
10: When she first called us, we instantly felt a connection. Then when we went out and met her in January, we definitely felt that.
2: She got emotional and she said, I grew up in a family with a single mom. I never knew my dad. What better thing could I give my child than having two dads?
10: From that point, from when she was five months pregnant onward, we were heavily involved and so we went with her to sonograms and to other tests we would fly out one or both of us would fly out to indiana to be with
2: her we were uh, in the hospital in the in the operating room as she was being born kevin cut the umbilical cord
10: i'll never forget the nursing staff i think they loved the fact that frankly there were two guys there with the baby who clearly didn't really know what we were doing.
2: Uh, Adoption laws require that you can't leave the state that the child is born in until some of the paperwork between the jurisdictions is processed. So we had to stay in Indiana for about eight days uh, in a hotel room. By ourselves, our families
10: are thousands of miles away. Very supportive, but not there. We've got a little tiny
2: infant. Confined quarters, crib between the two beds, bottles and diapers and wipes and... Pizza boxes everywhere. Thinking, what
10: have we gotten ourselves into? What are we going to do? How is this baby going to survive for a week with us as parents? But she did.
2: I <laughs> Papa? Yeah. So we had to figure out you know, who was, who was going to be called what <laughs> since there were two dads in the house and we can't both be called Dad. So Kevin's Daddy and I'm Papa. Oh.
10: Steve got the last name, but I got the name Daddy.
2: Right. She called both of us uh, daddy for a while before she could know that each one of us had a different uh, one. And that was actually just until probably yeah, about a month yeah. ago. Can you have a play? Uh, we have two cats, Bumper and Skittle, and she would call both cats Bumper. Or she'd go Bubba. So now she's, she's learning yeah. the differences between things that are kind of the same.
11: You Here. hungry? Yeah.
2: <laughs> In early May of this year... Her birth mother graduated from college on time, and she really wanted us to be out there with her during graduation, since the pregnancy and the baby were a big part of her college experience. We flew out there and sat with her family, watched her cross the stage and graduate from college.
10: And then afterwards, she sent us this card. Steve, Kevin, and Gabriella, I cannot express the dream come true it was to see the three of you at my graduation. It was so nice, beyond nice, to see the happy family I helped create in real life.
0: That was Kevin Sturtevant and Steve Geiseker of Silver Spring, Maryland, speaking with Metro Connection's Jacob Fenston. This story was informed by the Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their stories with us and for us to reach out for input on topics we're covering. You can learn more about the network by visiting metroconnection.org PIN. More and more men stay at home to take care of their kids. Daddy blogs are becoming pretty popular, with fathers sharing their thoughts on everything from diaper rash cures to co-sleeping strategies. Lauren Ober introduces us to one such
3: blogger who's turned his experience of fatherhood into kind of a cottage industry. Adrian Culp likes to call himself an unexpected stay-at-home dad. The Rockville father of two worked in Hollywood for years, booking comedians and developing television projects for celebrities like Adam Sandler and Chelsea Handler. But then the economy tanked and Culp's job ended.
9: So my wife and I discussed it and she was essentially working as a vice president in TV on the reality side and I was on the scripted side. And we were both essentially the same level. So I was lucky enough that she was successful in her own right to afford me the ability to stay at home.
3: With his professional life in flux, Culp took to the web for a little creative release. He started a blog called Dad or Alive as a way of chronicling his experience as a first-time dad. Over the years, his blog has become a business enterprise of sorts, with brand partnerships and a spinoff book that came out in May. Sony Pictures recently optioned the movie rights for the book, titled Dad or Alive, Confessions of an Unexpected Stay-at-Home Dad. Not too bad for a guy who didn't know the difference between a boppy and a baby Bjorn just three years ago. Why don't we change that diaper? How about that? Tell me what your first couple weeks or months were like when you were staying home with Ava and and you were transitioning from working full time. It was
9: difficult for me. There was a pride issue there. There was loss of confidence and self-esteem. You know, it, it was it was challenging. It was challenging mentally. And emotionally, thinking, okay, I just went from making this much money and driving this car and hitting these meetings and having this very busy schedule to, okay, I'm sitting in the living room staring at a 10-week-old baby girl that's not going to talk back to me. What am I doing? Um, So there was a big learning curve there. But I think I eventually, with the help of friends and family, came to realize the importance of what i actually was doing you know that it was and is one of the most important jobs you can do
2: Dad, i want want two snacks at the park
9: you want two snacks yes what snacks
10: i'll show you i'll show you
9: as a stay-at-home dad in los angeles three and a half years ago there weren't many of us you know when i was going out to the playground or going for walks or going to the store wherever we were going Um, you know, it was me being the only guy in the mommy and me class. Not that I was looking for a big support group, but there were really no other guys. So I started the blog essentially as a way to find others that were maybe in my same position, you know, other parents, specifically dads that I could commiserate with. You know, we could just share stories and and trade knowledge and stuff like that. So I started the blog, and after a few weeks, it caught the eye of a literary agent in in New York, and she essentially said, you know, look, I love these stories. I think, you know, maybe there's a chance that we can get you a publishing deal out of this.
3: Oh, wait, after you had only been doing it for a couple of weeks? A couple of weeks,
9: yeah. I think that visibility is a huge thing, and the big advantage I did have going for me was that I did have a well-established social network in Los Angeles, specifically in entertainment.
12: Here you go. You want to
9: play doctor? No, we're not going to give the dog any shots.
3: And don't take his temperature rectally either. <laughs> what do you think the appeal is of the stay-at-home dad? Because obviously women have been staying home with children for a long time. So, like, what makes you special?
9: I don't know that it's anything that makes us special. I think that it's, it's years and years of us not doing something. And all of a sudden, there's a larger group of us doing it. So it's kind of like, you know, let's all gather around and <laughs> see if they can either fall on their face or be successful at this. For forever, it's been the, the dad is the breadwinner mentality. You go to work, you put food on the table, and, and that's your job. That's what you do. Yeah, but times have changed. So you're finding a lot more men as primary caregivers.
3: Hey, Ava. Do you need help? You going potty? Your experience in comedy has sort of helped you laugh some things off. What do you sort of have to slough off like? Oh, that's not a big deal.
9: There have been a million things. My daughter peeing in her pants in the deli line at the Safeway while we were potty training. Normally, I may have gotten really frustrated and annoyed with that situation, but you can't do that. You know sneaking a marker into bed and coloring on the slats of their crib. And I come in at three in the morning to realize that the entire inside of the crib is, is plastered with blue marker stickers are the enemy.
3: I always see the minivan that drives by where the parent has clearly given up where like every window is papered in stickers except (laughs) the rear
9: window. I think their mentality is probably let's just let them do it. We'll wait it out and we'll clean it up once. Uh, but yeah, stickers are the enemy. Come on, let's come out of the bathroom, please.
13: Come on.
9: You want to be naked? Yes. You can be naked for a few minutes.
3: What do you feel is for you the best part of your job as a stay-at-home dad?
9: Well, I mean, first and foremost, let's be honest. I have no boss essentially, aside from my toddler who tries to manipulate me. I don't have a schedule, and my schedule is whatever we we make it. I mean, those are two gleaming advantages and and positives but I think overall being able to spend time with them and influence them and watch them grow and watch them develop their personalities it's just it's incredible it's amazing I know that I'm lucky to be able to do it this isn't what I intended it's not what I expected but I've really warmed up to it I certainly love it I'm sorry did you just moon me Great. No pants. Great. No pants mooning. That was a paycheck right there. I don't get paid on Fridays. I get paid at 4.31 on a Tuesday with a bare butt mooning.
0: That was blogger Adrian Culp talking with reporter Lauren Ober. And if you're curious about Culp's book about his parenting adventures, you can hear him read excerpts from it on our website, metroconnection.org. And now, our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we'll visit Logan Circle in Northwest D.C. and the Seven Oaks-Evanswood neighborhood of Silver Spring, Maryland.
5: My name is Jean Cavanaugh. I live in the Seven Oaks-Evanswood neighborhood in Silver Spring, just north of the, the Silver Spring Central Business District. We have a diverse dem- demographic, but we do have a lot of families And because we're so close to downtown Silver Spring, we can walk to the activities there, like the AFI Theater, the Farmer's Market on the weekend. Our tree canopy is something that defines the character of our neighborhood. We have about a over 60% tree canopy. And that is one thing I think most of the community fights to keep. And there are a lot of things threatening the tree canopy. Storms, PEPCO. And there's development. The development from downtown Silver Springs is creeping into our neighborhood, extending that gray area of downtown Silver Spring into our, you know, very lush green neighborhood. I think Seven Oaks Evanswood is a is a very tight-knit community. I'm not sure you can find this in very many places in the Washington area. That's why I stay here.
11: My name is Tim Christensen, I'm 56 years old, and I live in the Logan Circle neighborhood of Washington, D.C. The boundaries are K Street on the south, S Street on the north, 9th Street on the east, and 16th Street on the west. The population in Logan Circle probably has a higher proportion of LGBT residents than any other neighborhood in Washington, D.C. It's a very welcoming community. The era from 1968 to the 1990s, which was the peak of the crack epidemic, was very difficult in Logan Circle. Times have changed. The issues are different. People talk more about parking now than they talk about prostitution. But there are still issues that need to be dealt with, and they do draw the community together. Logan Circle has a couple of icons that are worthy of note. One is the beautiful statue of General John Logan, which sits in the middle of Logan Circle Park. The circle was originally called Iowa Circle. It was changed to Logan Circle in 1930. Another icon in Logan Circle neighborhood is, of course, the fabulous Studio Theater, which is part of the bedrock of this community. Whether it's shopping, dry cleaning, hardware store, great dining, terrific theater, terrific bars, everything I need is within a few blocks of my front door.
0: We heard from Tim Christensen in Logan Circle and Gene Kavanaugh in Seven Oaks Evanswood. If you'd like us to knock on your door so you can talk about your neighborhood, send an email to metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at Metro, And you can see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far on our website. That's metroconnection.org.
14: Next, protective parenting in the animal kingdom. He is a, a rather large great horned owl with a lot of attitude. Plus, it's the return of our
0: ongoing series, The Location, as we visit a spot that inspired the father of D.C.
4: jazz. When he started hanging out at Frank Holidays, all these jazz musicians were hanging out here from Howard Theater, and then they would show him things. And so he ended up having this slew of mentors.
0: That and more is coming your way on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and with Father's Day just around the corner, today we're dedicating our show to fatherhood. In just a bit, we'll visit a great horned owl that's acted as a surrogate father to more than two dozen baby owls in Virginia. And we'll check in with a Maryland dad who's been sailing with his family around the world. But first, we're going to pay tribute to one of the great fathers of jazz as we check out the location. Our ongoing segment in which Kim Bender, author of the blog The Location, tells us the intriguing stories behind locations around the region. Some of them legendary, some of them little known. This week's location falls somewhere in between. It's in the original neighborhood of that jazz legend we mentioned. You may have heard of him, a guy by the name of uh, Duke Ellington. Ellington grew up in Shaw, a historically vibrant center of African-American intellectual and cultural life in Northwest D.C., and the building we're standing inside is right next to one of Shaw's cultural hubs, the Howard Theater on T Street Northwest. Um, actually, I say building, but I should clarify, um, right now the place is more of a construction site as builders turn it into right proper brew pub scheduled to open this fall. Just because the listeners can't see us right now, we are standing... Let me get a... get the sound of this. <laughs> so we're standing on, on basically gravel. Um, the walls are kind of crumbly brick, um, clearly this this is a space that, that is in transition.
4: Kim Bender, what did this used to be once upon a time? Well, do you want to start at the beginning? Should we start from the very beginning? Because this building was two separate row houses, 624 and 626 T Street back then. And those were used for about 30 or 40 years as residences for African Americans who lived here. They were rental properties, basically. And then somewhere between 1910 and 1913, the wall between the two buildings was knocked out on the first floor and they were combined into one business. It's at that point that this became Frank Holiday's Pool Hall.
0: What kind of place was Frank Holidays?
4: Frank Holliday's Pool Hall was a center of African-American community. There were doctors here, lawyers here, all the way down to Pullman Porters, who would hang out at Frank holidays. It was a mixing of all different levels of African-American society. And so when he was around 14, Duke Ellington would sneak in here. He was too young to really come in, and he would hang out with all these different people. At that point, was he yet the musician that we know him to be today? No, I think in his autobiography, he talks about how he always was... Exposed to music. Both of his parents were pianists. He grew up with piano lessons and he had tutors. And I don't think, though, at that point he took it as seriously as he obviously became later. And when he started hanging out at Frank Holiday's, all these jazz musicians were hanging out here from Howard Theater and playing. And he would watch for a while, then start asking them questions while they were playing on the piano. And then they would show him things. And so he ended up having this slew of mentors. I can read you part of his autobiography. Do you want me to read you that piece? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, He writes, Of course, all the piano players used to hang out there, too. There was Ralph Green, who never really became a professional piano player. Claude Hopkins was there. Shrimp Bronner was another. Phil Word, who used to play the piano at Howard Theater, was a good songwriter, too. Roscoe Lee, who became a dentist, would be there. He and Claude Hopkins were reader piano players like Doc Perry, Lewis Brown, and Lewis Thomas, who came by from time to time. Les Dishman was a great left hand, and there was Clarence Bowser, Sticky Mac, and Blind Johnny. These cats couldn't read, but there was a wonderful thing in exchange which went on between them and the guys who did. So he really did have this, this network of guys showing him the ropes. Yeah, he did. That was what this place was. And it's how he found Doc Perry, who was his tutor for many years. I think that was someone who taught him the most of the men that he met here.
0: I wonder if it weren't for this place, what path Duke Ellington would have taken in his career? That's a good question.
4: Because really, jazz is not something that comes from reading music only. I mean, the fact that he can meld different styles from all these different people, from people who could read music to people who were making it up on the spot. You know, he had every kind of technique to learn from in this place. And I think, you know, he, in a way, birthed jazz in his own mind from these different kinds of people. Given how vibrant... Frank Holiday's place was, what happened to it? Well, the last thing that we really heard was there was this article in the Post where the ceiling was collapsing. Everyone had to run out. And I mean, it was shortly after that that they knocked the building down and rebuilt it as this other structure, which is what remains today. Went from a two story structure to a one story. I know by 1928 it was listed in the census as being empty. And then it was in the early 30s that it was changed over to this other building. Although in it's called the Afro American newspaper, which is um, a historic African American paper in DC, there's listings of Frank Holiday from the 30s on uh, hanging out with you know the people who are performing at the Howard Theater. There's one entry where he's talking about how whenever Duke Ellington comes to town, he moves out of his apartment and he lets Duke. Live there. He was listed as going to a bunch of boxing matches, but at that point he was old, probably just wasn't capable of operating the place anymore. But I mean, even though it disappeared, he left behind quite a legacy, it sounds like. Yeah.
0: Kim Bender is the author of the blog, The Location. To read her original post about Frank Holiday's pool hall and to see historic photographs of the building, visit our website, metroconnection.org.
1: Baby, take me down to Duke's place. While boxing town is Duke's place. Love that piano sound in Duke's place.
0: Our next story on today's Fatherhood Show takes us to Virginia, home of a father who was thrust into the role of caring for offspring that weren't his own. His name is Papa Goho, but he's kind of different from the other dads we've met today because... um Well, he's a bird. Environment reporter Jonathan Wilson brings us his story.
13: Papa Gahoe is a great horned owl. That's how he got his name. In fact, Gahoe is G-H-O for great horned owl.
14: He is a a rather large great horned owl with a lot of attitude.
13: That's Amanda Nicholson, the director of outreach for the Wildlife Center of Virginia, where Papa Gahoe now lives. It's a nonprofit animal hospital for wild native species. The center has been doing its work in the forested hills of Waynesboro, Virginia, about 25 miles west of Charlottesville, for more than 30 years.
14: We get about 2,500 patients each year, so all sorts of birds, mammals, reptiles, amphibians, and our goal is to rehabilitate them and hopefully release them again.
13: But every once in a while, an animal becomes too attached to humans or is simply too injured to survive in the wild. Papa Papagaho falls into the latter category.
14: He came in with a wing injury, so we worked with him for a bit, hoping that he would be releasable. But unfortunately, the very tip of his wing was injured, and he's missing the essentially the equivalent of his thumb bone.
13: That may not sound like a big deal, and to the untrained eye, Papa Papagaho is everything you'd expect. Piercing yellow eyes, powerful talons. He even clacks his beak in warning if you get too close. And he can fly, even with that missing bone. But, well, listen. You hear that? Here it is again. It's not loud, but that's the sound of Papa flying. The problem is, we shouldn't be able to hear him at all. Owls are nocturnal predators, and silent flight helps them swoop in on unsuspecting rodents or other prey. In the wild, Papagaho's potential dinner would hear him coming, seriously impairing his ability to hunt.
14: He is a, a flappy, somewhat of a noisy flyer, so unfortunately he can't be released.
13: And so Nicholson and her colleagues at the Wildlife Center decided the owl would become a permanent resident, and they put him to work as a surrogate parent.
14: We typically get a couple of great horned owls each year that are caught, caught in barbed wire fences for some reason. And then we also typically get a couple of young, orphaned owls each year, too.
13: Those orphans need a parent to model proper owl behavior for them. And that's where Papa Gahoe comes in. The orphans can watch him fly, hunt live prey, and even learn that they should be cautious around humans. You know, father knows best. But here's the twist. For a long time, Papa Gahoe was actually known as Mama Gaho. No, we're not talking about a sex change. It's just that with owls, there's no quick way to tell between guys and
14: gals. We know that in a lot of these species, the females are a bit larger, so we can make a good educated guess when we have an exceptionally large bird like him. We just kind of assumed
13: female. And so the assumption persisted for eight years, with this owl acting as a surrogate for orphaned owlets and animal rehabbers at the center, grateful for what they thought were maternal instincts. Then in 2010, the center had the opportunity to do some DNA testing.
14: We were all very surprised to find out that he is actually a male, Uh, just a very, very large male. But um, so we, uh, the name change was in order then.
13: So for eight long years, Papa Caho was playing Mr. Mom, doing everything mama would have done and not getting any extra credit well, maybe he wasn't doing everything Mama would have done.
14: It's actually really interesting. Uh, Once we learned that he was a male, and once we started our Critter Cam network in 2011, a lot of the puzzle pieces came together. We used to have an old surrogate owl way back when who, who was a female, and when we gave her young owls, she would feed them for us. So it was very easy. We threw the babies in with her, we threw her some food, and she would pick up the food and feed them which is the mother's role. But once Nicholson and her colleagues
13: started observing Papa Goho's behavior on camera, they realized he was catching the food and bringing it to the outlets, but feeding them, putting food directly in their mouths, that he simply would not do. It means biologists have to feed the youngest owlids by hand to make sure they get their meals.
14: A little bit of extra work, but that's okay. Really, Papa's job is to be a role model and just really be something at which the babies can look and understand, hey, I'm a great horned owl, and that's what I should look like and what I should sound like and how I should act when people come around.
13: And so 12 years after his arrival, Papa Cahoe continues his work as a full-time foster parent. He's now played surrogate dad to more than two dozen outlets. Who knows, maybe someday fate will bring him together with one of his grandchildren, and he can tell them about the time these silly humans thought he was a girl. I'm Jonathan Wilson.
0: If you'd like to see pictures of Papagoho or other residents of the Wildlife Center of Virginia, you can find links on our website, metroconnection.org. wrap things up today by hearing from a dad and a mom who are sailing around the world. In our ongoing Elsie Diaries series, we've been following Richard and Jessica Johnson as they and their kids set sail from Maryland on their catamaran, Elsie. When we last caught up with the family, they were in a bioluminescent bay in Puerto Rico. Since then, they've traveled across the Caribbean and made their way through the Panama Canal. Now comes one of the most daunting legs of their journey, crossing the vastness of the Pacific Ocean.
12: Hello, this is Richard on Elsie. We're sitting in Balboa on the Pacific side of Panama. Uh, We've just come through the canal and we're getting ready to go out into the Pacific Ocean. It's about 6,000 miles before you can readily get parts and uh, easily do repairs on the boat again. That's when you get to either New Zealand or Australia. So we're stocking up with uh, parts besides food and water, diesel. So our first leg is to the Galapagos, uh, relatively short at 800 miles, and then the long leg of uh, over 3,000 miles will take us to uh, the eastern edge of French Polynesia.
8: Here in San Cristobal, There are so many sea lions that they'll get in your dinghy, they come up onto your boat, they're all over the beach, they're even walking down the street in town. There's a large male sea lion sitting on our step. Let's see if he has anything to say. (laughs) Shoo! He really doesn't want to be. (laughs) (laughs) They're a bit aggressive sometimes. So we're still in San Cristobal and we're walking along a path strewn with lava rocks and it's an area called La Galapagaria and we're looking for some giant tortoises. The tortoises are hanging out in the shadows of the trees. There's a, a mud hole where they can go and cool off if they need to.
12: Uh, just started the longest leg of our our trip to New Zealand we departed uh, San Cristobal in the Galapagos Islands last night and we're heading in the direction of the Gambier Islands Um, hopefully we'll make a stop there
11: Okay, Elsie,
12: Elsie this is Caiba relaying for uh, the Magellan Pacific do you copy? Kahiba, Kahiba, this is Elsie, I have uh, no copy on uh, net control but uh, thanks for the relay. Have
8: you every morning and every evening we've been talking to other boats that have formed what's called a, um, a radio net and we come up on the same channel um, at the same time on a single sideband radio. and give position reports and weather reports and um, it's just a great exchange of information and it's it's somewhat social
12: 8 knots over
5: so it's been
8: about five days since we left the Galapagos Islands and we still have about 1,850 miles to go to our destination. On a boat, it's, um, it's usually considered bad luck to write down your destination in the logbook or, or even to mention it with a lot of conviction. So I'm just going to say that we are somewhere in the South Pacific and we're headed somewhere else in the South Pacific. I guess, to be honest, everyone's getting a little bit stir-crazy. Um, we'd like to get out and stretch our legs and maybe have a little, little time away from each other. But we've kept busy with Scrabble, with, uh, with cooking, planning meals, with schoolwork, with catching and cleaning fish, and, um, and just sort of enjoying our time here being at sea. That was
0: Jessica and Richard Johnson aboard their catamaran, Elsie. The story was produced by Metro Connection's Tara Boyle. You can learn more about the Johnson's expedition and hear more stories from their adventures at sea on our website, MetroConnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jacob Fenston, Emily Berman, Jonathan Wilson, and Tara Boyle, along with reporter Lauren Ober. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Eva Harder. Lauren Landau and John Hines produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, our door-to-door theme, No Girl, and our location theme, Turn Your Face, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. All the music we use is listed on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story and you'll find information about its accompanying song. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing on our website by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. Link. You can also subscribe to our podcast there, or you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, and the NPR News app. We hope you can join us next week when we'll embrace the official start of summer with our annual Feeling the Heat show. We'll check out a new NASA mission that explores the most mysterious region of the sun's atmosphere. We'll heat things up to 2,300 degrees Fahrenheit with aluminum and bronze artists at the University of Maryland's Art Department. And we'll meet a D.C. teen who's feeling the heat, so to speak, as she copes with her mother's drug addiction.
1: I had to teach myself how to cook. I had to keep the house clean. I had to teach myself how to tie my own shoes. I wanted to hang out with her and go places with her and her to be a good mother.
0: I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.